Adrian Harrington mm-hmm. is the proprietor of Adrian Harrington Red Books in Kensington Church Street, London, England. I'm a past president of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association, the ABA, which is the oldest Antiquarian Booksellers Association in the world, founded in 1906. And I'm the immediate past president of the International League of Antiquarian Booksellers, ILAB for short. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Pleasure to be here in Toronto. And the first international antiquarian book fair to take place here in 15 years, believe yeah. it or not. We constantly these days are hearing about antiquarian bookstores closing down. And the answer to that is quite obvious, but the question is, what are you doing about it? Well, first of all, I think part of the job is to raise the awareness again. Being brutal, we're an aging population of dealers, we're an aging population of collectors. So we have to, I mean, that's a battle cry of everyone. We have to engage with youth. There are some young collectors coming along. But the clamor for their attention is so loud through the media, and they get a lot of their entertainment through media. Luckily, a lot of them are still readers. You know, I've got 14 grandchildren, and all those of reading age are avid readers uh, right the way through. Thanks to uh, J.K. Rowling. What about suggesting young people that limited editions of their favorite books would be a fun or a worthwhile come. I mean if you stick with J.K. Rowling as a model or the, the books have now finished we're told she may do another one and oh. definitely working on a dictionary or encyclopedia because she has so many notes so many unofficial ones out there I think that would kind of make sense for her to allow it put it to bed but uh, I'm surprised there's no illustrated editions and I've not heard any word of one and that would engage another audience but to be fair the books are still selling in record numbers new generations are coming through they're still in print very much so but what are you doing what is ILAB doing you say that they're talking about a battle cry you know well part of the job is education when I took over as president of ILAB two years ago now everyone talks about how great their website is but it actually is a one stop shop if you're going anywhere in the world you go to the ILAB website, you'll find out what auctions are on, what book fairs are on, what lectures are on at the, the local museums. Anything that relates to that, we're gathering it in. And okay. if any of your people want to publicize anything they're doing, they should contact the web editor and that'll go there. Mm-hmm. A huge number of articles are going into it as well. Okay. So, But that doesn't solve anything. What you need to do is to attract, fi- attract people. So one of my other previous existences, I organized, spent 11 years organizing the Olympia Book, Antiquarian Book Fair in London. And we always try and get someone as a handle. We had Bob Geldof open it one year. We had Jacqueline Wilson, who I, I don't know how well she does in Canada. She is a children's author writes about troubled children, immensely popular. She is Britain's most taken out author in, in public libraries, absolute top of the tree. We send out invitations, bring your children along, Jackie Wilson will be signed in the book, you can meet the author. Fabulous. It went down so well. So we're looking at maybe outreach programs for schools, even Eton, hallowed playing field of Eton. We did a trip to Eton College Library, fabulous library, 
and they do a huge amount of work in disenfranchised areas, you know, troubled areas with children, bringing them up to Eton College, showing them the library, showing them the books. So there are people out there trying to reach out. Mm-hmm. Is there one panacea that can fix it all? Of course there isn't. But the main role is to educate and to bring people in. Bookstores tend to do a good job, author signings, author talks, mm. question and answer sessions. And if you're going to start with the young, let's get the children's authors into the stores talking and getting them excited about yeah. owning, owning yeah. a, a, a beautiful yeah. book. And remind parents, you know, reading bedtime. All my children are avid readers, all mm. my grandchildren are, but I read them bedtime stories. I still read them bedtime stories. That doesn't quite make them collectors, though. But it gets them used to the idea of a book being a source of pleasure. Um, be cherished. Yeah, you know, when you're reading it, show them how to turn the pages, and that goes into their mind as this is this is something special, this is something good, to look after the book properly, and later on, as they come to it, you talk to them about books. And you, you have books around them in the house. Yeah, these are not strange objects, these are yeah. not alien objects, they're not dust gatherers, as my mother, poor thing, used to call them, carriers of disease. So you were rebelling against her by loving books, were you? It it sounds unkind, but it was was post-war Britain, and everything had to be white, clean surfaces, no pictures on the walls. Uh, I remember we got uh, Barry Humphreys, you know, Dame Edna, to open the He's a great book collector. Oh, yeah, very fond of the 1890s. And he brought his first book home when he was eight or nine years old to Melbourne, and his mother said, Barry, get it out of here. You don't know where it's been. <laughs> so, or at least yeah. that you boil it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. my poor mother, I remember, putting a, some, a set of books in the oven to cook the germs out, <laughs> which wasn't a good thing to do. But that was a different generation. So what kind of thinking has gone into reaching the, the younger group? There's putting the successful, popular authors into stores. Because it does start with new books. Yeah. And then... You take your Charles Dickens to the beach, and quite honestly, it doesn't matter if you take it as a download on a Kindle or if you take your one from the second-hand bookstore, you're not going to put the genie back in the bottle. So I think there could be, and I've only just thought of it, but there should be applications about how to collect books and what to look for. I've always wanted to put together something for YouTube. There's a lot of amateur stuff out there on YouTube, yeah. uh, which is excruciating to watch quick almost tweets of of videos that show you how to identify a first edition uh, what you should be looking for but the other thing that I love about what you just said is someone's reading it on on an iPad or a Kindle but if they're able to quite easily access some information the history of the book the history of that particular book or here's what it looked like when it was first published Mm. or Here's one of the most uh, beautiful illustrated editions of yeah. this particular I mean, what book. Do you, you, Here's how you can act fighting on the technology, you're fighting it, you're not going to win. Yeah. You know, the genie will not go back into the bottle. Yeah. So what you have to do is use it. But you use it to do what you want to do, which is to uh, make an application that enhances the reading experience. You push on that and it's get a drop down that says right, you want to look this word up or 
you want to see what this chapter looked like in the first edition yeah. and the illustrations that went with it who did the illustrations Fizz did it what's the relationship between Fizz and the author yeah. how did this book first see the light of day it didn't see it as a book it came out in magazine part you uh, designed the typeface what sort of paper did they yeah. use well it was bad paper for the illustrations as we know they get very foxy foxy what's foxy that's one of the criticisms against the new technologies you're reading a book and there's all these hyperlinks and it takes you away from that wonderful completely absorbed concentration on the story yeah. which a book does because you can't click and distract yourself all over the place but I guess the challenge for antiquarian book trade is to somehow link you've got to make the person aware that the text they're reading exists in another form and that to handle that book in its original form or in a fine illustrated form or whatever in a book collectible form is a different experience and it's not just about the reading it's about having a resonance reaching out to the past and it's about resonance that's what it's all about what do you mean by resonance you pick up a first edition of David Copperfield in a contemporary binding or in the original parts this is the way it first saw the light of day it's a bit like if you're uh, into military history it's a bit like going to a battlefield you can read about the battle when you stand there and you just imagine these poor souls in medieval times running over a muddy field carrying all this armor and this weight of stuff it brings it to life more there's a resonance suddenly when you go back to your book and start reading about the battle it becomes more alive you have a resonance with the situation you're reading about mm -hmm. and with the book you're seeing the illustrations that Dickens approved of he had a working relationship with this Adler is how he wanted to present it to and the this world. Is, that's the way it was birthed to the world so you started a process there, there is more to just the text on your screen there is another aspect to it mm -hmm. for a lot of people they'll say oh yeah but that's, that's great but and you have to be very wealthy so you have to get around the idea that just like anything else in life you can go out and buy a television you can pay $150 for one or you can pay $1500 but you're still going to get a television you can start book collecting in a very accessible way yeah. journalist yesterday I was talking to about this and he said so if I wanted to start collecting what should I do and I said buy something you understand buy an author you have a feeling for who's your favorite author Scott Fitzgerald I said okay what's your favorite Scott Fitzgerald book he said Tales of the Jazz Age as well that's good because the great Gatsby in fine state you're not going to be able to afford yeah. yet and then make a relationship with a dealer because by doing that you'll buy a, a collectible form of Tales of the Jazz Age then if you want to upgrade that copy he'll take that one back He's any sort of dealer at all he will and you'll be able to upgrade and we talked him through it about half an hour later he came up I've just bought the first Canadian edition of I've just started book collecting great paid fifty dollars for it and that was yesterday but we took the fear of starting yes. away from it what's so thrilling is that if you love books and you go into a bookstore regularly anyway for the content mm. of the books collecting gives you hundreds of new reasons to go into, into oh, yeah. those stores and every new idea that and store looks different each time yeah. you go in make a relationship with a, with a store owner talk to them get them to educate you come to book fairs we're at a book fair now just wander around ask questions look at the books I've just seen this book over there I'll give you an example there's Voyage to the Moon H.G. Wells it's very rare in Dust Trapper because uh, the Dust Trappers in the old days were designed to be thrown away they were just 
except a book in transit. Yeah, now they're worth there's 70 one, percent of there's the value. There's one hit by an ordinary first edition for four or five hundred dollars in okay condition. There's one here at thirty-three thousand dollars because it's got the dust jacket on, and it's rare, but it's got some damage to the dust jacket. And then there's one immaculate, seventy-five thousand dollars. And if you come to this fair, you'll see them all, and you'll begin to understand what makes rarity condition what makes collectability, why people are doing it, you'll slowly get a handle on it, and the first thing to do is jump. Plunge in. Plunge in, yeah. 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 Talking about uh, first editions and the first way that material is presented to the world, speaking of military, mm. the Governor General's Award in Canada has been going since 1936-37. There was a book by Timothy Findlay called The Wars. I just came across an American first, that book. The picture on the dust jacket has him almost looking hippie-ish with a cigarette and a yeah. big swirl of smoke coming up around his head. Yeah. You won't get that on the latest editions yeah. and you certainly won't get it. Well, you might eventually get it on, on yeah. digital, but what it does is it really puts you in his mindset. That's right. So, you know, coming back to your question, yeah. how do we engage people? and start from collecting books and understanding that there's nothing wrong with owning a Kindle and, and taking it on holiday. That's a utility object and that's what it's for. But it's not the same reading experience as picking up the first edition or an early edition. And that's the message that needs to get across. I would like to see groups of school children uh, coming around these fairs, get their English teacher engaged, bring them around and have a couple of dealers talk to them, show them. It's not a mystery object. It's an attainable object in most cases, and it's just going to change your approach to, to reading. It's about the history too, isn't it? It's yeah. about how books were, were presented in that particular time. Yeah. And, and again, what the authors looked like. You're handling a piece of publishing history. And bear in mind, when uh, Dickens started producing his books, we'll use Dickens as an example, they'd just really introduced wood pulp paper in a proper way before that it was all made of rag paper was expensive and that was the start uh, really of getting mass produced books out to the public and increasing the size of the reading public it was a revolution almost as big as the revolution that's happening now with, with Kindles and so on it allowed a huge reading public and you take something like uh, The Death of Little Nell in the old curiosity shop when the ship pulled into New York yeah. Harbour yeah. famously you couldn't, the harbour was packed solid with people just desperate to know the mm. fate of Little Nell. Yeah. And you see something similar with the Harry Potter books now. It yeah. doesn't change the excitement of it all. The excitement, but putting a bit of a damper on that, the bricks and mortar stores that bibliophiles love so much are closing in record numbers. Do you have any statistics on that? I'm sure there are ones out there. I don't have any to hand. And also they would be possibly misleading because a lot of uh, stores will close down in central locations because the rents are too high, but they'll reopen further out. They're not as accessible to the public because uh, the high streets are now just full of generic shops, Nike shops and so on, all selling exactly the same stuff the whole world over, but they're all paying very high rents. So the stores are closing down, but a lot of them are relocating. And a lot of them aren't going out of business. They're, they're going not going online, out of business. The owners are still going to book fairs. Book fairs are good place to see books and to learn as I said before. Does this trend worry you? What, the stores closing? Yeah. I suspect it's been happening for years. Uh, when I first started uh, in the trade, I used to go to any town in Britain 
look for the high street or the market square there would be a bookstore there traditionally it would have new books at the front downstairs second hand books used books at the back and upstairs would be a rare book room every town had one they've slowly gone it does worry me but not overduly what worries me more is that children aren't seeing those books and let's say that we're talking about the next generation of collector and if the books are unloved they're going to end up going to landfill out of sight out of mind yeah well yeah that's the big concern there is another aspect which is that as the we'll use kindle as a generic name as the kindle grows it's currently seven or eight percent of books sold or sold as downloads stig larson's book the first e-book to exceed a million sales as a download got all of that going on to print a book you have to do the maths yes you're going to have to proofread it print it bind it distribute it if downloads take away the cream of that suddenly you reach a critical mass where a publisher will say I'm sorry yeah I can sell a thousand copies hardbound but I need to sell five thousand hardbound to make it work sad to say we won't print it unless they do print on demand they they can look at print on demand that's always going to be available but not the quality it's not the and it's not going to be a published book in the sense that we know it would be a utility piece of, of, of production so sad to say I believe we're probably at a real end of an era the supply of books will become finite you'll always have private presses and vanity publishing and so on but if you're looking at uh, books in the sense of Darwin's origin of species the way it first saw the light of day original thought like that will probably not be printed mm-hmm. until it arrives at the fact that uh, this is important you know, right then so it will it's almost retroactive then. yeah and I spent a lot of the last year or so thinking about what my attitude should be I can be a Luddite and say well, this is terrible we should ban Kindles and so on but history shows that such actions don't work yeah. so I think we should embrace them and find a way to use them like a Trojan horse to get people back to the original and within the application within the download of David Copperfield or whatever here is what it used to look like here's a tantalizing glance at the original illustrations mm-hmm. and, the way, and the way they were produced and here's where you can buy and it and here's where you can buy it go to the site have a look these yeah. books are affordable uh, in 99% of the cases you'll be able to buy a first edition or an old edition and uh, handle it and enjoy it in the way it was meant to be handled and enjoyed in the first place. I'm speaking with Adrian Harrington, purveyor of fine and rare books from uh, London, England, just having finished his tour of duty as, what was it, president of President the, of the uh, International League of Antiquarian Booksellers. There are some countries that really have protected, promoted the presence of used antiquarian bookstores. I'm thinking of France in particular. Mm, France is very good. I wonder what they're doing that we might be able to encourage or try to convince our governments to do I think part of it lies with the French education system Uh, it's a deeply cultured country and it's not scared of teaching culture in its schools Uh, I don't know what it's like out here but in Britain if anything is perceived to be hard academically everyone wants to try and make it accessible to children uh, I think it's demeaning it's, children are smarter than that 
they can absorb big ideas. So what were you saying? What's your point? Well, that, that in Britain, certainly, we are producing, because we're dumbing down, I think that's the phrase, we are getting an end product where the ch child can't read and write properly. I mean, they don't have to worry about punctuation or spelling anymore, for example. Mm -hmm. And I can see the thinking behind that approach, but in the end, writing and talking are all about communicating mm -hmm. and if you don't Secondly, have a common yeah. a common ground where you meet which is called language written and spoken then you your uh, communication breaks down mm -hmm. in france they still teach french in the proper manner and written it's strict about it yeah. very strict so when you come out of school you are equipped to understand French culture and books and so on. I think it's it's not the whole story, but it's, a, it's a, an important ingredient. So it's a respect for the past? A respect for uh, the past, a respect for knowledge. You don't dumb knowledge down to try and make it accessible to children who are perfectly capable of understanding it and like the challenge. So you go to original sources? You yeah, you teach them how to... And still do this. It's not a, this isn't a universal condemnation. You know. yeah, yeah. Uh, teachers do a great job and a very difficult job. But I think politicians do tend to want a populist solution to certain things. And it worries me. In Britain, you've got uh, a lot of universities are having to do remedial classes, yeah. teaching children, these children, these, these are 18-year-old grown-ups, how to put an essay together, how to form their ideas, how to communicate their ideas. It's very much part of why I believe we have an aging population of book collectors and readers because the educational system is failing them in many many cases because why they're not teaching them how to read and write properly no. but what they're also not inculcating them with they're the not engaging them with an desire to and they're not engaging them with an holistic view of knowledge the educational system as far as i can see it certainly in britain tends to be training a child towards employment uh -huh. rather than educating a child and most employers would rather have an educated child i think it's going to be more useful than even at checkout. So what is it that the French do that we can do easily? Let's say I'm, a, I'm an antiquarian bookseller. I'm concerned because I want to keep my store open. I love the interaction. I also love preserving history and culture in the way that I do. But my overheads are making it very difficult. If you're a bookseller and you want to do your bit... I want to do my bit. I want to talk to my MP. Uh, what should I say to convince government to pay greater respect to what I'm doing? There's no quick fix. There's no easy answer. Education is just part of the picture. Obviously, we've got schools in Britain that aren't doing field trips because of health and safety concerns. Health and safety has become uh, the comedian's yeah. best friend at present. Most jokes are about health and safety. Of course yeah. we want our children protected when they're on a field trip. But when, it, when geography is, is about looking at a television screen because to actually go out there is too dangerous, and it clearly isn't, you're not teaching geography. You're not showing the lie of the land. Parents can help by talking to their schools and saying, look, Take the kids into... Uh, take the kids out to the battlefields. Take them to used bookstores. Talk to the book, used bookstore and say, look, we'd like to bring our class in. Would you be prepared to show them around? At present, we're teaching uh, causes of the First World War. 
what books have you got on that that you yeah. can show them what memoirs you know poetry poetry absolutely and but connecting that with the, the actual object here's the bookstore yeah. in your bookstore you can pull the books down you know, yeah. this is the way they printed the book this is the way they, they designed it this yeah. is the way it saw the light of day it's the history of the book that should be a, ca a category or a, or a subject matter that's given greater emphasis yeah. in, the, in the schools. The content, you know, they can get anywhere, but the actual history of the book. Use the old books. They, they have this word again, this resonance yeah. with the past. This connection. It's not going to fix everything. Of course it isn't. But uh, I've, I've played a percentage game. If only 5% of the children, the lights come on, that's 5% more than <laughs> nothing. Yeah. And I'll take that any day. Just uh, winding down, I mean, the argument can be made because everything's going digital that the, the existing books, particularly ones that are well made, that are uh, have value in themselves, are, are in the long run going to become more and more valuable. So, people do buy books for investment, and historically, um, they haven't done terribly badly on that. It's, yeah. it's fine if they buy the right ones. But I never, I would, if a customer comes to me and says, I want to buy books for investment, yeah. now advise me. The advice I would be giving them isn't, this is a great investment. I'm not even allowed to do that by law anymore. I'm not a, a regulated investment advisor. But what I can do is say, historically, if you bought this book 20 years ago, as a matter of fact, it would have been this much. 10 years ago, it would have been that much. Right now, I'm asking this much and why if you look this book up now on the internet you'll see that I'm charging £100 for it other people are charging £50 for it and there's one out there for £200 and yeah. you'll ask me which one should I buy should I just buy the most expensive well that's not always a measure of quality but what you should look for is there a reason why some of these books are very cheap same book same mm -hmm. description mm -hmm. footage, and it's because of condition and the honesty of the description of that. The honesty of the description, which is why you should make a relationship with a dealer, because then you can go back and punch them on the nose. <laughs> if, uh, but also they will help you upgrade and they will educate you as to how reasonable it is to get decent condition. Also what to look for. So if you're at a garage sale or something and you see something you think is good, you can phone your friend the dealer up and say, look, I'm looking at this. The guy wants 50 cents for it. And the dealer says, well, great, describe it to me. Take a photograph using modern technology on your phone and send it to me and I'll look at it. Buy it. Yeah. Write the man's hand off 50 cents is great. I'll give you 100 bucks for it straight away. So your relationship with your dealer is good. Yeah. And you, sh you should use an ABAC dealer. Or ABAA if you're in or the States. Or ABAA yeah, if you're in the States. Yeah. Basically an ILAB dealer, an ILAB affiliated yeah. dealer. Okay. Uh, there are rules that govern their behavior and if they break those rules, they lose their membership. And that is commercially damaging to them. So they ain't going to do anything other than look after you. Yeah, it's almost like a Better Business Bureau stamp yeah. of approval. Yeah. yeah, it's not just a, it has teeth. The beautiful book, the, the, you know, you talk about the investment, mm. what you're doing if you pick the, a book that you love, yeah. the, the return is a great experience that you have with that book. If you buy stocks and shares, they may go up, they may go down, whatever the disclaimer is on the advert. Yeah. Uh, if they fail, you just got a bit of paper with some printing on it. Yeah. Yeah. Your book, I can't think of anyone's that failed, but if something disastrous, you've still got a great book, which yeah. is why the advice is always buy the book that, that you love. That you love. Yeah. Buy something you understand okay. and want. Now I'm going to contradict that with my last question mm. and ask, 
where should we go? What books should we get? What What's undervalued these days? Oh, In your opinion. Uh, what's, a, what's a beautifully produced book or series of books that you think are undervalued right now? Um, it's too big a question. Just say fine press. Uh, fine press books. What's undervalued? I, what's undervalued is ones in great condition. If you go back to the, the 30s and 20s, the golden age of these things, because they're so beautifully produced and so well produced, they're great survivals. But there are enemies of survival which you can't do anything about. Sunlight is one. Sunlight fades and often stains the book. Mm-hmm. Dust and mildew um, and, and bugs. But so what about specific? A specific you, press. Well, what do you look for? Because I, I saw you at, at a, another book fair that was on in town, mm-hmm. and uh, you know you had the radar out and you're scanning yeah. the shelves. So I'm looking for I'm looking for stuff. authors that I deal in. I mean, weekly we're the biggest dealers in James Bond and Ian Fleming first editions in the world. Your eye zooms in automatically, and you look for it, and you pick it up. The next thing you do is look at the edition, and then you look at the condition, and you check it out whether it's price clipped, whether it's sun faded, whether someone's written in it. Fine if it's Ian Fleming writing in it, I'll put up with that. But uh, if it's someone else, you know, yeah. to Johnny, lots of love from Mum. Yeah. Uh, they've just devalued the book. So I'm looking for the collectability. Yeah. That's the catch-all phrase of it. So you're giving me one author, Ian Fleming. The fact that you focus in on that obviously tells me that you Gives me a great more expertise, and we're in the middle of producing the bibliography and yes. companion piece. Yes. Uh, that'll be out sometime next year. Great project to work. John Gilbert, my son-in-law, is, is the author of it. It will change the way people collect James Bond. And Ian Fleming. How's right. that? Well, because when you print a book, you can have things that during the print run, they suddenly spot there's a mistake, printing error, they stop the presses, they change it, carry on the print. So within that first edition, you've now got two states. <laughs> okay. The first state and the second state. Right. And we're finding a lot of stuff on that. Interesting. It's very big. And you can do that with a lot of authors. I mean, we do a lot with Arthur Conan Doyle as well. We do a lot of detective fiction. So when you're looking at these things, you're looking for so many things. And that's where the fascination is. You're not going to get that on your Kindle. You're not going to get that sort of, wow, look at this, this this happened, that happened. Get, or the author objected to yeah, something or the at objected. the last minute. Or, the, yeah, they didn't yeah. like this or that. Yeah. And, had to change and you get some and great misprints as well. You know, Violent Carter is one in, instead of Violet Carter in, 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 uh, in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, a uh, famous misprint. You get great ones for the Bibles. Thou shalt commit adultery <laughs> is the most famous. I think the printer of that got seriously into trouble back in the 18th century. I bet. Yeah. To get his hand cut off or... Uh, I'm not sure what happened to him, but uh, he nearly lost the license to print, which was, which was a big one. So some misprints can be kind of fun. I need something for our you listeners to take away from this interview. I want some, not a, the general advice, I want specifics. I know what you want. You're not going to get it, though. I could start a stampede, and that would be a wrong thing to do. It would be like me giving investment advice. Yeah, but this is advice we all want, though. Yeah, everyone wants a quick fix. Go out, buy this, it's undervalued, and as a result of buying it, you're going to be smiling in a few years' time. It doesn't exist. It does, but only with one rule book. It exists with that great gift of hindsight. It exists after the event. The case 
needs to be made by the collectors. You know, you go yeah. out, you've assembled a, an interesting collection. Now it's you who needs to tell the world, well, why is this why, important? Uh, you play golf and you want to collect golf books or you do cooking and you want to collect cookery books. But then within, as you start, you realize that what you're really interested in is the evolution of cooking, how it happened, why is French... What, how did French cuisine came up, come about? And then you realize that it came about because of the French Revolution. It wasn't an evolutionary process. What happened was suddenly there's a lot of unemployed chefs in France who go out and start cafes and restaurants, and, but they didn't have the ingredients, so they're taking really appalling ingredients and turning them into something great. And you go, well, hang on, that's really interesting. And suddenly you're expanding your horizons. You're also refining your taste, you're aren't you? are refining your taste. And then, ultimately, as you collect, you go, do you know what? No one's written about this, not from my take on it. I'm going to write my book and use my collection. And once you've done that, then your collection has an enhanced inherent value, probably has an advanced fiscal value as, as well. Well, you, there is you, a wonderful connection, isn't there, between yeah. collecting and scholarship? It comes back to the golden rule. Buy what you like. Buy what interests you. Ask questions about it. Should I buy this copy? Will I get a better copy? How long would it take me to get a better copy? You know, if you buy Pride and Prejudice, first edition, seminal book, really important collecting book, you can pay anything between £30,000 and one's just gone for £110,000. Why did it go for £110,000? It was in the original boards. It's the way that it was first seen by the public. Traditionally, in those days, the book would then be sent off to the gentleman's binder mm -hmm. to be bound. Mm -hmm. This one wasn't. Great rarity. So you start thinking about publishing history. So how did other books appear like this, in this form, this really drab utility binding? Yes, they did. Mm -hmm. Oh, you, you start to become interested in that. And you might decide from Jane Austen, you're going to just look at regency literature. Or you might start to look at the women writers. and Yeah, that's uh, the great thing, isn't it? There, there's just so many different avenues you can yeah, take. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of the wonderful things. Yeah, about so just from one book, you can suddenly decide to go off in all sorts of directions. And yeah. the more you think about it, the more directions you'll see. So that's, that has to be the advice. Not you should go out and buy X, Y, Z books because they're undervalued. Sounds to me like, though, Bond is a pretty good bet. Bond has been uh, extraordinary. I've never known an, an author like it, and I'm including J.K. Rowling in that. J.K. Rowling, we, we tend to specialize in. Books come to the end of the series. The first book is still incredibly rare because no one knew. It was issued mainly to school libraries, so the condition is pretty appalling. What the collector wants is fine condition especially in a book published in 1997. It's reasonable yeah, yeah. that they should have it in fine condition. But James Bond is so pivotal, uh, the Ian Fleming books, in what they started in all media, including, obviously, film. Yeah. Did you see Aston Martin just went for yeah, 1.4 million? Yeah. Something like that, anyway. Yeah. I he mean, paid 12,000 bucks for it's it. It's huge in, in the public's mind, and I yeah. don't see that ever diminishing. Yeah, so here's the advice. Grab the bonds before the bibliography comes out because a whole bunch more people are going to be going after them. Well, you said that. It's <laughs> worth noting that the rules of our trade association are we are not allowed to promote... What, you sell? Uh, no, we're allowed to promote... So we're not allowed to say, buy this book. It's a great investment. It okay. will go up tomorrow. Yeah. And if you... Ten seconds thought about that, you'll realize it's a, it's a good rule. It, it's there to protect the public.
Well, it's not an easy fight to keep these great stores open. There are things uh, that can be done. Will it work? I don't know. But uh, sitting around saying, well, what's the point? The battle's lost. History is full of such statements, and they don't read well on the page. Thank you for your candid insights and advice to collectors. It's been a great pleasure. Pleasure talking to you. I've been speaking with Adrian Harrington, who is the proprietor of Adrian Harrington Books. Rare books. I thought you hated that word. Well, <laughs> I was interviewed on a radio show in Britain about five or six years ago, and a poor woman introduced me as Adrian Harrington, an anti-aquarium bookseller. <laughs> now, I've got nothing against aquariums, I really don't. <laughs> Uh, but it is a bit of a mouthful, and yeah, uh, it's, yeah. it's looking a little antiquated, so Rare Bookseller kind of does it. But it, even Rare Bookseller is a misnomer because it's collectible books. We still haven't found a, we haven't found a definition for an antiquarian book yet, believe it or not. You look up on Wikipedia, it's not there. Another challenge. Another challenge. Straightforward. What do you do for a living? I'm an antiquarian bookseller. What's the definition of an antiquarian bookseller? And you end up with an essay, not a thing. Not an elevator. Can, not something that you can put in the Oxford English Dictionary. Which, incidentally, the first edition was 1886. The third edition will probably never be printed. It will mm -hmm. be an online-only thing, which is very sad. But there we are. There we are. On that note... <laughs> 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 thanks a lot again yeah thanks